Welcome back to Orthodox.Faith. This is Ron Bentley. And this is John Harmon. In our last episode, we launched season five of the podcast, as well as this current series on the book of Ruth. Yes, we looked at some of the background to the book to give us some context for reading the narrative, and then we jumped into the story. There was a lot to talk about because there's a lot to notice in the story that's important, but it can sneak by us if we aren't reading carefully. As I've heard you say before, that's characteristic of Hebrew narrative. By nature, Hebrew storytelling is compact. It's quite terse and dialogue heavy, and authors tend to pack a lot into what's said. Right. And like many other storytellers, they assume the reader or the hearer has a high degree of familiarity with the context of the story. There's a lot that isn't said because it didn't need explaining. We, on the other hand, have to work a little harder. Well, we're trying to fill in some of that context here. In other words, we're doing the contextual heavy lifting, if you will. There are three main characters in Ruth, and we met two of them in chapter one, Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. The story begins tragically. Naomi had lost both her husband and her sons. Uh, One of those sons was Ruth's husband. So Naomi and Ruth are now both widows. In their day and time, that meant they were in dire straits. They decided to return to Naomi's homeland as their best chance at survival. And we left off last episode at the end of chapter one. They had just arrived home in Bethlehem, but there was now a hint of hope. They arrived right at the time of the barley harvest. Let's go see how they fare. We pick up the story in chapter 2. Now that Naomi and Ruth have traveled from Moab in the east back to Bethlehem, they have two needs. Somehow, plans will need to be set in motion to meet those needs. The first is a simple, short-term need. It's the need to find food. Right. Naomi and Ruth have to have some means to survive so they don't go hungry. Last episode, we worked through how the story began. It started with a famine in Bethlehem in chapter one. Ultimately, though, God provided for the people of Bethlehem. There was food there now. In fact, we got that hint of hope when Naomi and Ruth arrived just as the barley harvest was about to come in. However, Naomi and Ruth don't own land, nor do they have jobs. The pressing concern now is how would they be fed? But John, you mentioned two needs. The first was finding something to eat. The second is... The second need, the long-term one, was to solve the problem of having no male provider, protector, or heir in the family. And this was crucial in their society. Exactly. The way that society worked, as with many other ancient societies, was that the family name and property passed through the men. Of course, the responsibility to provide for and to protect the family also rested with them. That was part of the purpose of investing them with those resources. John, it probably goes without saying that some modern readers are going to find that mechanism deeply disturbing. Mm -hmm. At the moment, stories where a woman has to have a man looking out for her are particularly unpopular, but that's what you're saying this is. Yes, but remember that the story is not endorsing or proscribing anything. It's simply dealing with the reality in which the characters lived. Mm -hmm. That's the way things were. If we want to be good readers, we have to be careful about passing modern judgments on ancient cultures. The needs that we find in these characters' lives were real. So if we're going to understand the story on its own terms, we have to set aside current agendas and political arguments. This is the reality they encountered. Yes, these were real people with real problems. If we as Christians want to make something out of this story, we might ask ourselves, how does God address the real problems these two women were encountering? The answer might surprise us. 
In any case, that's the question the story is posing at this point. How will God provide? All right. So we have two main characters, Naomi and Ruth. They're confronted by two basic needs, food and family. And we're about to find out that a new character in the story has a major part in the solution of both of these problems. Chapter two of Ruth opens with an introduction. We meet Boaz. Boaz will play an important role in the rest of the story. There's a lot packed into this opening verse. It reads, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a prominent wealthy man from the clan of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. Yeah, this is classic introductory backgrounding in Hebrew narrative. I expected no less from you, John, but backgrounding? (laughs) Oh, yes. This opening sets the stage for the first of two scenes in the chapter. Boaz is the focal point of this part of the story. There's no doubt about that. The syntax of the narrative at this point sends a clear signal. The role this new individual will play is significant. Okay, let's focus for a minute on a phrase that's especially important here. We're told this new character, Boaz, is related to Naomi's late husband. That's supposed to get the reader's attention. More about that in a minute. In addition, though, we also learn that he is a man of means and prominence in the community. Right. In Hebrew, it's Gibor Chayil, a man of strength or a mighty man of strength. And it often refers to a warrior. But in this context, the nuance is that he has wealth and property and is a man of influence among his people. I'm guessing I should be asking whether that specific phrase has any particular positive or negative connotations here. Ah, great question. And you are being surprisingly relevant here, Dr. Bentley. (laughs) The, (laughs) The phrase conveys a positive sense. Okay, in our modern world, introduce someone who's rich and powerful, and that's often not a compliment. I might be imagining a greedy, evil landowner who uses his wealth to get his own way. You might, but what you should be imagining, at least if you want to stay in the cultural context and true to the vocabulary here, is someone who is noble, respectable, someone who has good character. So that's the context. Yes. In fact, we find the feminine equivalent of this same expression in Proverbs 31.10 when we meet the famed Proverbs 31 woman. That verse begins with the well-known question, an excellent wife who can find, or sometimes it's translated a wife of noble character or a capable wife who can find. What makes her stand out is her excellent character, her industriousness, her contribution to her family and community and so on. It's the same vocabulary and Boaz is described in these terms. So in a nutshell, Boaz is a somebody not just because he has wealth, but because he's a good man of good character who does right by others. And it seems the community respects him for it and the strength that it requires. Right. So a heads up here. We need to remember this. The narrator could have told us all kinds of things in this single verse of background that begins the chapter. But what he does tell us about Boaz is two things. First, he's a relative of Elimelech. And second, he is a Gibor Chayil, a prominent man of good character. All right, well, Boaz has been introduced. It's probably time to ask, how does he enter the narrative storyline? In verse two, Ruth has an idea that might help their immediate predicament. It's harvest time, so there's an opportunity to glean. John, last episode, I asked you about Moab. Now, gleaning, that's not a word we encounter (laughs) often in modern usage and certainly not as it's used here. Yeah, good point. That's definitely worth explaining. Hebrew law required landowners to allow the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner to gather any grain, grapes, or olives left behind while harvesting. 
a landowner was prohibited from harvesting the corners of a field and was not allowed to strip the fields or vineyards or orchards bare by going back over and over to pick or to pick up every morsel. It was not a matter of the owner saying to the poor, "Eh, help yourself if you can find something. The gleaning laws guaranteed that there would be something left for them. And we find those laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy specifically. Now, different landowners showed different levels of generosity in carrying out all of this in practice, but they were all at least supposed to follow the letter of the law. Ruth seems to know about this, and she suggests going out to glean wherever she might find favor. I'm guessing that means she intends to glean wherever she's allowed to do it. And by the way, the narrator refers to her here as Ruth, the Moabite woman. We already know who she is. Perhaps that's mentioned yet again to highlight her vulnerability, as well as, I guess, her eligibility to glean. That will be an issue here shortly. Yes, that's what Ruth will attempt. And Naomi goes along with the plan. Ruth sets out to glean wherever she can. And the text tells us that she happened to find herself gleaning in a field belonging to Boaz. And just then... Boaz happens to show up, returning from town. The language that the author uses is almost humorous. The author certainly doesn't believe that this was pure chance. But he also wants to communicate that this meeting with Boaz was not engineered by Naomi and Ruth. John, this is one of my favorite parts of the book. Boaz shows up and interacts with the workers in the field. The language isn't the language we'd expect, but we also have to be imagining this idyllic pastoral scene. I'm seeing a field with the wind blowing gently through the barley ready to be harvested. (laughs) Although to be fair, everyone in the scene is facing what's about to be a lot of hard work. In any case, though, when Boaz shows up, he greets the reapers or harvesters with a blessing in Yahweh's name, which supports his presentation as a man of character. I understand that this is the first of several blessings in this chapter. Yes, those reapers were most likely free Israelites who hired themselves out to do harvesting for an agreed-upon price. And there's a man acting as a foreman of sorts who's overseeing this group of laborers. At some point here, Boaz notices Ruth, and he asks the foreman who she is. He identifies her as the Moabite woman who has returned from Moab with Naomi. She had apparently asked permission to glean and had been working all day. Now, how will Boaz respond? We don't expect that he'll respond harshly, but we're in for a surprise at how far above and beyond what is required of him he actually goes. Scene 2, chapter 2, opens in verse 8. Here, Boaz speaks to Ruth for the first time. In biblical language, he shows her favor. The word used in the story is the word for grace. Boaz is extending unexpected, generous kindness, and that's what we're supposed to understand. He doesn't know her personally, but he calls her my daughter, and he instructs her to remain and glean in his fields. She's to follow after the other women. It sounds like there might be other women gleaning in the field. Uh, Probably not gleaning. Okay. That more likely refers to maidservants, that is, servants of Boaz who are women. They bundled and bound the barley stalks into sheaves behind the reapers. The reapers, of course, were the ones who cut the barley down with the sickle. The men did the cutting, and the women, or perhaps a group of women and men, followed them and gathered the stalks. When Boaz tells Ruth to follow after the other women, the point is probably that she would have access to more grain this way than if she were merely gleaning under ordinary circumstances. 
And she doesn't have to draw her own water either, which was very hard work. Uh, she can drink from the water already drawn by the men, and in having permission to do so, she had a status similar to one of Boaz's own workers. Boaz is also given instructions to his workers that Ruth is not to be interfered with. So when we put all this together, Boaz is giving Ruth generous access to food without any potential hassle from the workers. She apparently could have faced that hassle if she had gleaned more than she should. Now, though, Ruth can glean in the fields under Boaz's protection. This is extraordinary, and Ruth knows it. She literally falls face down on the ground. She's bowing. It's a humble posture. It implies servitude. Ruth asks Boaz, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, a foreigner? Yeah, Israelites did not normally treat foreigners this way, especially during this time in history. There were, of course, laws that protected those who lived in Israel but were not Hebrews, but Boaz is not just following those laws. He's going way beyond them. He's showing grace. John, I've got to ask why. I think we modern suspicious readers want to start supplying all kinds of less than noble explanations at this point. <laughs> yes, indeed. And, and I see that suspicion in modern readers surface from time to time. And I would simply have to ask, where do we see that in the story? Mm -hmm. Is it actually there or is it a figment of the modern imagination? I'm a pretty careful reader of these narratives, and I can't find it in the text, which suggests to me that it's coming from outside the text, from our own time and place, and that becomes a textbook example of reading out of context. Mm -hmm. As far as the text of the story itself is concerned, Boaz himself explains why he's doing this, and the narrator expects us to take him at his word. This has nothing to do with her foreignness. It has nothing to do with any other imported modern consideration. It has to do with her unselfish love for Naomi and her trust in Yahweh. He sees her coming to Judah as an act of loyal love and as an act of coming under Yahweh's protection. Essentially, Boaz begins to treat Ruth as a maidservant in his own household, which would naturally obligate him to protect her. In other words, he takes responsibility for her well-being. I can't help but notice, though, that she still gleans. She still carries her grain back to town. Yes, Boaz preserves her dignity by allowing her to work, but he does so by lightening her load with some extra generosity. He's, he's being very careful with how this looks. Okay, but we're not surprised given what we now know about his character. Exactly. Now, at the end of this scene, she is allowed to eat with his household at midday, and she gets to keep some leftovers. She winds up returning to Naomi at the day's end with quite a haul. The text says when she had threshed the barley, it came to about an ephah. An ephah being? The best estimates of that measurement would put it at about 29 or 30 pounds of barley. And that's after threshing, right? Right. So for those who may not be familiar with it, that means 29 to 30 pounds of good usable barley. Right. Threshing separated the seed from the husks of the grain. The heads of wheat or barley grain were spread out on a hard flat surface called a threshing floor. It was usually round and made of really hard packed earth. Then they dragged a heavy wooden board over the heads of the grain. The underside of the board was studded with sharp stones or pieces of metal, and this would break them up. Exactly. And once the seed was separated from the husk, then they tossed it into the air so that the much lighter husks and the dust created by threshing blew away in the breeze. That's called chaff. 
only the heavier edible grain fell back down to the ground and was collected. And that part of the process was called winnowing. I think most of us have heard that phrase, separating the wheat from the chaff. Yes, that comes from this process of winnowing. The chaff blows away in the wind while the wheat or barley seed, the stuff that has substance and usefulness, it remains. As we said, the place where that happened is called the threshing floor. And we're going to have more to say about that when we come to chapter three in the next episode. Now, though, back to the story. As Ruth heads home with so much grain, we should probably anticipate that there's going to be a conversation between Naomi and Ruth. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. We can see it coming. Naomi knows very well that Ruth is carrying far more than a gleaner should have come away with in a day. It's obvious to her that someone has been very generous with Ruth. So Naomi quizzes her, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Okay, Boaz blessed the workers earlier in chapter two. Now Naomi blesses Boaz, and that's the first of two blessings Naomi pronounces on Boaz here in verses 19 and 20. There's a lot of blessing going on in this book, prayers for blessing and answers to those prayers. Right. Blessing is an important idea in the Bible and in our Christian faith. It's also an idea that gets tossed around very casually by both Christians and non-Christians. In the Old Testament, including here in the book of Ruth, a blessing was typically a prayer in which one person appealed to God as the righteous judge to reward another person for some act of kindness. And by the way, the opposite of that is called a curse, Mm -hmm. where a person called on God as the judge to punish another person for an unjust action. They're opposite sides of the same coin. Now, getting back to the dialogue, Ruth answers Naomi's question about where she had gleaned that day by revealing that she had worked with a man named Boaz. At this point, Naomi blesses Boaz again, and this time she invokes the covenant name of Yahweh as the agent of blessing, and she gives the reason. Boaz has shown kindness not only to the two women, but also to their late husbands by caring for their widows. This marks a change for Naomi, doesn't it? Not too long ago, she was convinced that God was an oppressor who had afflicted her. She had no hope her daughters-in-law would be better off with other gods, and even her name should be changed to bitter. Uh, Yes, there may be a hint that Naomi is turning a corner and beginning to see some hope for them. And once again, the theologian has a good eye for the narrative. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Naomi doesn't just celebrate Boaz's generosity. She identifies him to Ruth as a relative and one of their kinsman redeemers or guardian redeemers. Naomi saw Boaz as a man who was taking his family commitment seriously. There's no single English word that captures very well the Hebrew word goel. It means kinsman or guardian redeemer, and it was a legal status. It was a person who was a guardian of the extended family's interests, and it gave him the authority and the responsibility to buy back property that the family had sold, for example, or to buy back family members that had been sold into slavery to pay off a debt. You can see why redeemer is a useful part of the translation. Also, under the law, that person could avenge a murdered family member. We don't know exactly how broadly the community understood or defined the role of the kinsman redeemer in practice, but it's very possible that it was more generally understood as the one to deliver a member or members of the extended family from any harm or catastrophe or severe hardship. As we get to the end of the chapter, we hear Naomi encouraging Ruth to take Boaz up on his offer to remain with his female workers until the harvest was complete. It was her best shot at staying safe and providing 
provided for. And we learn in the last verse that she did exactly that. And not only for the barley harvest, but also for the wheat harvest. That's two full months of presumably uninterrupted, generous gleaning. Now, Ron, if we can engage in a bit of extrapolation. Yeah, I think you mean speculate, right? (laughs) We promised last episode that we would light up the sign that says when we're doing that. (laughs) Fair enough. But it's controlled, not wild speculation, if you please. I just mean that we might consider the potential cumulative scale of Boaz's generosity. I think it could get lost on modern readers just how much help Boaz is giving. When ancient Israelite readers or hearers of this story heard that Ruth came home with an ephah of grain from gleaning a single day and that she continued to glean for two full months, it probably registered more quickly with them than it does with us. Yeah, surely I can be forgiven for missing that. That's a tiny sliver of context there. Based on what we know about normal daily food rations, that single ephah of grain would have lasted the two women a little more than a week. Let's say that Ruth brought home an average of that same amount every day from the beginning of the barley harvest to the end of the wheat harvest, basically late March to late May in Bethlehem, or two full months. That would provide food for those two women for something between nine months to a little over a year. Of course, we don't know anything about the quantities that Ruth gathered and brought home after that first day, or how many days she worked, and so on. We only know that she continued to glean through the end of the wheat harvest. But the arrangement that Ruth had with Boaz could have been a level of generosity and support for her and Naomi way beyond what we modern readers might take away from the story initially. It wouldn't have been out of character for Boaz to give it, nor of Ruth to do the work, given her loyalty and her sense of responsibility to Naomi. At the end of Ruth chapter 2, we've met Boaz, the third of the three most important characters in this story. He's the guardian redeemer, he's part of Naomi's extended family, and he's a respected man of character. And Ron, I'd want to add that he put his money where his mouth was. He took direct action to provide for Ruth and Naomi. Okay, so he willingly adopts the role of being his family's provider. Exactly, and to take it a step further, he honored not only Naomi and Ruth, but their husbands, his deceased kinsmen as well. Well, Ruth's character continues to shine through too. She has a responsibility to Naomi. Boaz isn't a way out of that responsibility, but he is a way for her to meet that responsibility. Right. Among other things, Boaz was a way for Ruth to meet her obligations in safety. Okay. Ruth did not expect Boaz to deliver 30 pounds of grain a day to her doorstep or whatever that amount was. John, there may be a temptation at this point to ask, was Ruth using Boaz? Yeah, that's a very modern question to ask. And it's tricky in this context. The question might be better posed, is Ruth manipulating Boaz into performing his responsibility in a way he would not have done anyway? Mm, Okay. The story indicates that she is not. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it's hard to fault either Naomi or Ruth for responding to Boaz's generosity as they do. It's a simple fact that these women are socially and economically vulnerable because they do not have a way to provide for themselves. They depend on others. And Boaz is a way that God provides for what they need. Well, we did begin the episode by identifying two needs, food for immediate survival and protection for the family, the second one, and and ultimately a male heir. That's right. Part one of the plan is to secure provision for their immediate needs. That is complete. What about part two, the long-term plan? Well, stay tuned for the next episode. All 
right. And that's where we have to wrap it up for now. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please do see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. Thank you for listening. Thank you.